Will you give us two minutes of your reflections on the rally? Ooh. Um, so I just wrote a little write up for, um, I just sent it to Allie Began. So I will share it here. Um, it was magnificent. It was beautiful. I think one of my favorite parts um, was where we were standing. We had a group of Hasidic men in front of us. We had a cute little secular family from LA behind us. We had Christians for Israel. We had a group of Russians. We had all the yeshiva boys. And just the whole range of the people that were there was magnificent. Um, I didn't know it, but I asked a friend, what was song are we singing now? And it was Psalm 121. And that <laughs> was beyond beautiful. My favorite song in the whole world, I learned, um, or I heard the first time in Israel at um, Abraham's tent when we were in the desert. And that was Madis Yahoo one day. So when everyone was singing that, um, Hatikva, I like grabbed everyone around me, the Russian women and the Christians, and I'm like holding them and we're all swaying together. <laughs> so that was magnificent. Um, but then every time I really took a second to think about why we were really there, I had to fight, fight back tears. Yeah. So it was just this whole, you know, weird feeling of like, this is amazing. And this is awful at the same time, yeah. but overall, so amazing. And, um, very, 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 never been more proud and more grateful yeah. to be Jewish. Wow. Oh, I'm glad I asked. <laughs> <laughs> just, just that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. I had a very, very similar experience. Um, I actually wrote up a little something about it and it is going to come in your emails. If you're on our JFX email um, but if not, don't worry. I'm sure I'll be blasting it all over the place. So <laughs> you'll see it somewhere else. Um, but yeah, it was really a very, very powerful experience. Um, and I want to share with you guys something that I did not write in the article. Um, hello, Naomi and Sydney and Stacey, Hi. Debbie and Adina. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know if any of you have ever had this experience, but when I was 18 and I was on my seminary gap year in Israel, um, I participated in something that I have never had the opportunity to do later because when we lived in Israel after that, I had kids. But there's a, a like a tradition that a lot of people have that they walk to the Kotel the first night of Shavuot. So some of you might be familiar. There's a there's a custom to stay up late on Shavuot night doing Torah study. And in Israel, so then what, a lot of, I mean, specifically men who have to be at Minyan the next day is they'll do the earliest prayer possible, right? So they'll like stay up all night studying and then sunrise is really early because Shavuot is in the summer. So they'll do the like 5.30 a.m. or 6 a.m. or whatever prayer service, right? And then they'll go to sleep for a couple hours and then they'll get up and have the holiday lunch or whatever. So um, hello, Leslie and Avril. Um, so anyway... So a lot of people do this walk to the Kotel, like they'll stay up all night, night, Shavuot night, they'll study Torah, and then they'll walk to the Kotel in the morning for the sunrise prayer. And so there's, a, you know, and in Israel, Shavuot is only one day. So that's the only morning of Shavuot that there is. So when I was in seminary, I decided, a bunch of my friends and I decided we wanted to do this walk to the Kotel. We did not stay up all night, but we did get up at like 3.30 in the morning or whatever it was to walk to the Kotel. And the experience that I had, and I'll never forget it, um, 
So, you know, you're up at like whatever it is, four o'clock in the morning and you start walking to the hotel. And when you start walking, it's dark, it's cool out, streets are empty. And as you're walking, you know, like suddenly like this group will join and this group will join. And gradually the group of walkers grows and grows and grows. And before you know it, people are coming from all different directions and you're like a throng of people walking toward the hotel. And when you get to the hotel, there's like hundreds and hundreds of people packing the hotel plaza to pray at sunrise for the holiday. And when I was doing this walk, when I was 18 years old, I remember thinking to myself, like, when have I ever experienced anything like this? You know, growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, you know, when have I ever had an experience like this where you start out feeling like you're one individual walking in the dark? And by the end, the sun is rising and you're surrounded by hundreds of your brothers and sisters, all there for the same goal and the same purpose. Well, on Tuesday, I felt like I was doing it again. And it was like electric. So those of us who went from Cleveland, um, many of us went on Federation buses. There were 25 buses from our Federation. We were around 1,700 people going with our Federation. And so the Federation got permission to park at the Kennedy Center, and so which is a two-mile walk from the National Mall. So we parked there. We got out, used the bathroom. They gave us food, of course, because they're Jewish. And then we started walking the two-mile walk to the plaza, to the mall, rather. And again, like we started walking and it was just my bus, you know, and then the other Cleveland buses were all there in blue and white. And we've got the signs, Cleveland stands for Israel. But then as we continue walking, gradually there's Boston, you know, stands up for Israel and there's Chicago stands up for Israel and there's LA stands up for Israel. And there's the, all the groups that you were saying, Dana, you know, and before you knew it, we were like these throngs and throngs of Jews, you know, we're all quiet, of us quiet. in our blue and white and all of us carrying signs and wrapped in flags. And I was like, oh my gosh, this feels like walking to the hotel. And by the time we got to the National Mall, it was like hundreds of thousands of people, the likes of which I had never seen before. But of course, nothing can compare to being at the hotel. But let me tell you something that was more special about Tuesday. The people walking to the hotel for Shavuot are by and large, I guess, 99% religious Jews. And that's beautiful. But the diversity that we experienced on Tuesday, standing there together, exactly what Dana was saying, you know, very different political groups, very different religious groups, different ages, different affiliations, different synagogues, different everything. That for me was totally unprecedented to be able to stand in a diverse group like that, all of us together, shoulder to shoulder, standing for the same thing. It was electrifying. And I have to say that being at the rally, you know, in a way, I feel like there were two things going on at the same time. There was the experience of being there with all these people you know, and just looking at all these people and where are they coming from? And this, you know, church group and these black people and, you know, just all these people from all over the place. And then there was the program that was actually happening, you know, and I almost feel like because I was so in the moment with all these people, like the program was almost secondary. Like, I'm so happy that it was recorded because I actually missed parts of it, even though I was there. But, 
you know, in the beginning, like my daughter was feeling like she needed a drink. So we had to leave and then I didn't hear. And then we had to leave at 2.15 because we had to catch our buses. So I missed the end. There were things I didn't even hear. But being there in that group of people was something that, and this is what I told to my daughter. I said to her, listen, you don't have to come. It's going to be a very long day and a hard day. But if you do come, you will never forget this for the rest of your life. You know, and that that's how I felt. So it was really, really an extraordinary experience that I'm so grateful I was able to participate in. And I have to give a shout out to Ellen, who's on this call, who works for the Federation. Our Federation did the most magnificent job organizing this gargantuan project. I have to give Kara Satova, I have to give gratitude to our Cleveland Federation. So thank you to Ellen and thank you to our Federation. Um, and thank you to everybody who was able to go. And for those who were not able to go, thank you for what you guys are doing from wherever you're standing to support Israel, because we all need to do our share. Okay, I'm going to open my window because I am roasting. So hold on one second. Okay. So let us begin we are on the book of Proverbs. We are on chapter 18 and we are on verse 20. Let's see if we might finish our, our chapter today. All right. Verse 20. With the fruit of his mouth shall a man's belly be satisfied. By the produce of his lips will he be satisfied. Okay. So we're talking about a satisfaction that is um, a satisfaction that is deep and real. Like when a person is actually satisfied, like, you know, we were using the metaphor of eating, which we'll explain what that means, right? You know, sometimes you eat something and you're like, ah, no, that wasn't really what I wanted, <laughs> right? Or you're like, no, I'm not really feeling full. I'm not really, no, that wasn't really it. So when a person eats something that hits the spot, you know, you're hungry and you eat something delicious and it's perfect. It's just what you wanted. Right. And you're like, oh, that was good. That's the feeling that we're talking about here. So we know that when we talk about, um, you know, the lips and the and the mouth, we're talking about speech. Right. And we're talking about producing wisdom with your speech, taking wisdom from inside of you and bringing it outward through your function of speech. OK. So when the verse says, with the fruit of his mouth shall a belly be satisfied, shall a man's belly be satisfied, by the produce of his lips will he be satisfied. So what it means, the commentary states, the mouth refers to the inner wisdom of the moral law and the lips to the external expression of clear knowledge, right? Because your lips are external. When you look at somebody, right, the inside of your mouth, you can't necessarily see. If a person's mouth is closed. You can't see the inside of his mouth, but you can see a person's lips. That's external, right? So the mouth refers to the inner wisdom of the moral law. It refers to what you know on the inside and the lips refer to expressing that wisdom to the outside. When a man attains produce, a clear, matured knowledge of wisdom, right? Why do we call produce produce? Because the earth produces it. It is the produce of the earth, right? So when a man attains produce, what, what is the product, so to speak, of wisdom? so good. Hold on one second. Um, 
a clear, matured knowledge of wisdom. His superficial talk too gives full satisfaction, leaving nothing more to be desired. So what that means is that when a person is truly wise on the inside, then even their external speech, right? Even their chit chat is going to have value because you can learn from the mundane conversations, right? Of a mature, wise person, even the mundane conversations, even how, how they handle, you know, silly little interactions, you can still learn from them. Okay. We actually had an example of this in last week's Torah portion. We had a story of Abraham sending his servant Eliezer to find a wife for his son, Isaac. And the Torah devotes an enormous amount of airtime to this whole conversation that Eliezer has. First, Eliezer, first Abraham says to Eliezer, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find me a woman for my son to marry. And she should be like this and like that. He says, yes, okay, I swear. And then he travels to the city where Abraham wanted him to find a wife from his hometown. And he makes this whole deal that the woman who comes out and she offers me water and she even offers my camel's water, she'll be the one fine. So then you hear it again. Then he finds the woman, Rebecca, and he goes back to her family and he repeats the whole story again. He says, yes, my name is Eliezer and my master said this and I said this and the woman said that, right? And the Torah says, we the, the, there's a principle in the Torah that the Torah is very frugal with its words. The Torah weighs and measures its words very carefully. So if words are repeated, then there's a message. So the Torah says, why does the Torah devote so much airtime to this whole conversation over and over again? And the Torah says that God is so proud of his righteous people that even their mundane conversations you can learn from. And this is why, by the way, there's a principle in the Torah, a, a, a character trait, if you will. It's called shimush chachamim. Shimush chachamim means to serve a wise person. That means if you have the ability to hang around to service, right, to like in today's modern parlance, to be an assistant for or to intern with, a wise person, you will learn so much just from their mundane conversation, right? This is why people take low paying internships or sometimes even not no paying internships to make a cup of coffee for some celebrity or politician because, right, or some hotshot lawyer because they're hoping that they'll ingratiate themselves, that they'll pick up something along the way and they're getting their foot in the door. So they're willing to do menial jobs for someone that they respect and admire because they, they can learn from how that person conducts. I mean, not necessarily in terms of moral character. It depends who you're talking about, right? But there's a story, Alan Morinas, who is a modern day mustard teacher, who started out as a secular Jew, an archaeologist and a film producer. Um, and he ended up getting very involved with the study of Torah and getting very connected to his Judaism. Anyway, his um, teacher, his muster teacher, his name was Rabbi Yechiel Per, a very accomplished and special Torah personality. So he, what, he, he, Rab, um, Alan Marinus lives in Vancouver. Rabbi Per lived in Farrakko in New York. And one time, uh, Alan was coming to New York and he called up his rabbi, Rabbi Perrin. He said, I'm coming to New York. I would love to spend time with you. So they were going through their schedule. And he said, listen, the only break in the action that I have is um, I'm running some errands for my wife. His wife had recently had surgery. He goes, if you want to accompany me on my errands, then we can spend time together. But I don't have like free time per se. So he goes, great. I would love to spend time with you 
and see how you run errands. He goes, well, how much can I learn from my rabbi and see how does he behave in the grocery store? How does he behave when he's paying for his groceries? How does he behave when he's taking them out to the car? Where does he put his shopping cart when he's done shopping? How does he pull out of the parking lot? You know, he's like, this is great. I'm going to learn so much from the mundane actions of my rabbi. Anyway, they get to the grocery store and Rabbi Per takes a shopping cart. So he says, no, Rabbi, he goes, I, it, I, I'm servicing you today. It's like, it's my job to be, you know, your intern, your assistant, let me take the shopping cart. He goes, no, I can't let you take the shopping cart because I am doing an act of kindness for my wife because I'm going shopping for her because she had surgery. So he goes, but it's my mitzvah to serve you. So he goes, yes, but it's my mitzvah to help my wife. And here are these two, they're both like these large imposing men. They're both like six, four, you know, and they're like, fighting over this shopping cart in the, in the parking lot. And, um, you know, it was a humorous encounter, but it's this idea that when a person is wise, even their mundane behaviors and conversations have so much to teach. And that's what our verse is telling us. And, um, when I was in Israel in my seminary year, and I know my daughters have shared this experience as well, you end up going to a lot of people as a guest for Shabbat. And as you do, you end up learning a lot about people. Um, like a friend of mine was just recently organizing a community event. She had never done this before. She goes, you know, you really learn a lot about people when you organize a community event. <laughs> I'm like, you think? So anyways, so you go to these people's homes for Shabbat and you can just like pick up a lot. Like how do spouses talk to each other? How do they talk to their kids? How do they handle bedtime? How do they handle their Shabbat meal? I, you know, I hope these people knew how scrutinized they were being with their Shabbat guests sitting around their table, right? But it's like you pick up a lot. And and I form I formulated a lot of my ideas of what I wanted my adult life to look like based some what I did want to do, some what I did not want to do, right? Based on observing people, so to speak, in their natural habitat, right? Or through their mundane activities. It's not so much about what a person says, it's about what they do. You know, there were at, at least one, could be more, politician at the rally who very passionately promised undying support for Israel. And then today, or yesterday, I guess, voted against aid to Israel. So it's not about what you say and it's not about what you preach. It's about what you actually do in your day-to-day -day life, right? So here in our verse, we're saying that a wise person, even their mundane behaviors reveal wisdom and you can learn so much from a person like that. So we should try to surround ourselves with people like that so that we can learn from how they handle their regular, normal, everyday um, circumstances. Okay, thoughts or comments on 20? Okay. I was gonna say in a very modern kind of unrelated a little but related way there's been such an issue with the world and um younger people not being at offices anymore oh, and a big problem with that is they're not around the senior level people to hear their little conversations and i've had that conversation with hmm. um you know people that 
you know, the just how somebody talks to a client, how somebody talks to a superior, how somebody talks to whoever is 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 becoming a lost art because of that. So, so interesting. Wow, I never thought of that. You're saying like mentorship is sort of getting lost. In some cases, yes. And the demand for, you know, flexible hours with, um, you know, the generation that's currently, you know, 30-ish ages, they mm-hmm. are not taking jobs that don't let you work from home. Not every, obviously, but I do know a fair number of people who, you know, would not, I mean, five days a week in the office. No, that's a no-go. Hmm. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. There you go. I'm actually working right now, so I'm going to And, you know, a part of it too, is that I think that some people in senior positions, they don't necessarily consider themselves role models, or they don't necessarily feel that they have to be models of morality. I feel like they feel like they have to be good at their job. And that's what they're role modeling. You know, they don't, I mean, there's, there's this story floating around. I have no idea if it's true, but even if it's not true, it's still a good line. There was a professor of ethics at some university who got caught having an affair with a student you know, and when questioned, the professor said, I don't understand. If I were teaching geometry, would I have to be a triangle? <laughs> Again, don't know if it's true, but it could have happened, <laughs> right? We're like, there's a, a divide between being in a position of being, you know, a role model to a younger charge, but feeling like that would only be relevant in your specific area of profession and not feeling the need to be a role model of what a human being is supposed to behave like, you know? And, and I think that we all have to feel the responsibility of that leadership because, you know, wherever we go, there are younger people or more or less experienced people who are looking at us and watching us and wanting to see what we're going to do and how we behave. And even just by virtue of being Jewish, right? We are charged with being in a leadership role in the world and with being role models and leaders and teachers for humanity. And we know the world is watching us. The world is watching us very, very closely. So we have to make sure that our mundane words are wise, you know, and that if we were caught off camera saying something or doing something, that it wouldn't be something that we're ashamed of. Okay. Any other thoughts on 20 before we move on? Okay, 21. Mavet v'chaim biyad halashon. This is one of the most famous quotes from this book. Mavet v'chaim biyad halashon. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Ba'ohaveha yochal pirya. And those who love it will eat its fruit. So one of the understandings of this verse is that with your tongue with your speech with your words you can kill someone or you can revive someone right if you say something let's say somebody says oh hey you know i was interviewing so and so to work for me what do you think and you're like eh you can do better right or let's say someone's dating someone and you meet the person they're dating right and you're like really you can do better than that. 
you can destroy somebody with a very short statement, right? And by the same token, you can revive somebody with your statement. You know, I remember when I was a newlywed and I, you know, in the religious world, we do, you know, bride and groom education. So the bride and groom separately, you know, will go to a rabbi or a rabbitson and get, you know, education about, you know, typically a person grew up religious. They don't have, you know, a lot of experience being in uh, intimate relationships and they need to learn the laws of marriage and mikvah, but just in general to get coaching on the Torah view on relationships and treating a spouse with respect and what healthy relationships look like and all of this. And I remember, I forgot who one of one of the people who were involved in my education at that time said something. If your husband does something that you love, instead of telling all your friends, tell his mother. You know, because not that you can't share something positive with your friends. Of course you can. But if you go on and on about your husband and your friend either doesn't have a husband or maybe their husband isn't quite that awesome as yours, right? You can really make somebody feel bad and you can sow discontent in a relationship. So go tell his mother because she will be delighted to hear it, you know, and in general, um, and we also had this story in the Torah portion, um, two weeks ago, where these three angels come to visit Abraham and Sarah. And one of the angels says to Sarah, you know, you're going to have a baby next year. Now, at this time, Sarah was 90 years old and her husband, Abraham, was 100 years old. So the Torah famously states that Sarah laughed when the angel said that she's going to have a baby. She laughed. So God says to her, why did you laugh? So she said, now you have to remember, Sarah didn't know it was an angel. It was an angel in disguise of an Arab. So she just thought this random traveler is telling me, a 90-year-old lady, that I'm going to have a baby. That's ludicrous, right? If it would have been an angel, she would have reacted a little differently. But nevertheless, God was not so pleased with this because she should have said, well, God can do anything, right? And actually, I will share with you, I was at a class on Sunday with my Moser teacher, Mrs. Miriam Barkin, and she was giving a class about the life of Sarah. And she said, it's a lesson to all of us that if somebody gives you a blessing, right? If somebody says, oh, I hope that you, you know, get this job or, you know, may you have experience healing or things should go better for you. Even if you think it's like ludicrous and not possible and so far out of the reach of reality, you should respond and say, amen, may God do so. And believe in your heart that God can really do anything. It was really a very powerful lesson for me to hear. But in any case, so Sarah laughs and God said to her, why are you laughing? And she said, well, I can't have a baby. I'm, I'm old and my husband is old. So later, God is talking to Abraham and he says, you know, I told Sarah she's going to have a baby. And she laughed and she said, I can't have a baby because I am old. So God changes the words that Sarah said, right? Sarah said, my husband is old, which he was a hundred years old. Like there was no disputing this testimony, right? He was legitimately old. Okay. No matter who you ask, a hundred is old. Okay. Even if, you know, you want to say a hundred is the new 90. Okay, fine. It's still old. Right. But God like basically lied. He said, Sarah said that she is old and the Talmud like really spotlights this. And says, you know what you see here? That keeping the peace between husband and wife is so important that God himself is willing to fudge the truth 
Why? Because don't tell a husband that his wife said she's old. Now, these two had been married for decades. Okay, they had a pretty good relationship. God did not need to do damage control. But it's a lesson for us. How powerful are the words that you speak? Don't tell a husband something that's going to make him think less of his wife. Don't tell a wife something that's going to make her think less of her husband. Don't tell somebody something that's going to make them feel disappointed in their kid or in their parent. Don't tell them that somebody else said something about them. Don't say it. Why would you say it? What value does that bring to the world? Death and life is in the power of the tongue. It's a really, really powerful lesson that the Torah teaches us, right? When, whenever I see like, you know, newlyweds, I always go over to the, to the woman and I tell her how adorable her husband is and how cute he is and everybody loves him and this and that, you know, it's a new relationship. It's young and it's vulnerable and it needs to be strengthened. Find something nice to say. And guess what? I've been married for 30 years. I still love it when people give me a compliment about my husband. It doesn't ever get old. So look how much good you can do with the power of your speech and look how much damage you can do with the power of your speech. Okay. Let's go to the commentary. The tongue connotes the lofty faculty of discernment and understanding that can differentiate truth from falsehood, right? So that means that with your mouth, you can choose if you're going to say something true or untrue. It's very easy to fudge the truth. It's very easy to make something sound worse than it is when it suits you or to make something sound better than it is when it suits you. Um, and these two are issues of life and death with a true perception of the principles of our faith. We will live while with a true perception of the principles of our faith, we will live. Meaning if you speak words of truth and peace, that is a life. Now that's living, right? While with perverse negative conclusions about divine existence and providence, reward and punishment, etc., one will die. You can live a life full of grumbling and complaints, grumbling and complaints against God, grumbling and complaints against people, grumbling and complaints against your circumstances in life. That's no way to live, right? That's no way to live. That's really negative. Who wants to live like that? Those who love rational thought and understanding will never reach final satisfaction for it has no end so that they will be happily occupied in their mental and spiritual development as long as they live. So this reference is the end of the verse. Those who love it will eat its fruit. What does that mean? If you love the process of trying to live a life of truth and peace and to speak words of truth and peace, right? So there's no end point, right? When you, when you try to live a good moral, productive life where you're doing good in this world and doing good for people and you're pursuing peace and you're pursuing acts of kindness and you're pursuing truth, right? You may have noticed that there is no point at which it says game over, you won, <laughs> okay? There is no end, right? There's always some new challenge, some new wrinkle, some new development, something new to worry about something new to wonder about, some new mess that has to be cleaned up or some new mess that you can't clean up, right? So that's why the verse says, 
You have to learn to love the process. There is no end point except for death. Death is game over. That's it. There's no point at which God says, okay, guess what? You worked hard enough in this lifetime. Now you can go eat chocolate bonbons on a beach in Maui. You're good. Guess what? Even if you were eating chocolate bonbons on a beach in Maui, it's going to rain on that beach. And the person that you wanted to be there with is not there. And the chocolate bonbons are stale. There is always going to be something to wrinkle your plan. Guess what? Because that's what we're doing here. We're here to grow. We're here to develop. We're here to learn. We're here to use our tools. And if you keep living life like there's some end point, you're going to be really disappointed. But if you live life to love the process, right, then you will eat its fruit. Those who love it will eat its fruit. Then you can be happy every day because it's not about the end point. It's about the process. And if you can learn to love the process, and if you, if you can learn to love yourself in the process, to be so proud of yourself for how you're handling the process, right, then you won't be consistently disappointed with the fact that the results are often not what you thought they were going to be, right? I'm sure every single person here would agree when I make this statement. When I look back at myself from, I don't know, fill in the number, 20, 30, 40 years ago, there are a lot of things that didn't go according to plan. Would you guys agree with that? So it's hard not to feel disappointed and frustrated by that. Unless you say that the end point was never the point. The process is the point. So I'm going to learn to love the process. I'm going to learn to love myself in the process. And then I'll always be happy. Right? Okay. Thoughts, comments, questions on 21. So, um, Ruhi, one of... Um... I think for for me, one of the salient features of the outcome versus the process is that the process I have a lot more control over than the outcome, which tends to not only be limited to what I could do in my what my aspirational self could do, but also a lot of other variables that are just not under my control. So um, I tried to, I, I can't say I succeed, but I keep trying to orient myself toward a process that has integrity. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But you still need goals in life. They may shift. Your well, goals don't remain the same. So here's the interesting thing. Sometimes we make the mistake of having goals for other people. And I think that's where we get thwarted. If you have goals for yourself, right? For your own personal development, then like Tammy was saying, those are the goals that we actually have agency with. Right. You know, and I think it's important to think about that, you know, like, I'll just give you an example. So our grandson's bris was three months ago. And all of my kids were in town and I had this dream that all of my kids were going to be at the bris, right? 
That was me having a goal for another person. And in the end, not everybody came. And I was very upset. And I reminded myself that the reason I was upset is because I created a goal for another person. Whereas let's say I would have been a little more Muslim-minded and I would have said to myself, my goal is to focus on the joy of the Simcha, whether all my kids show up or not, right? Or my goal is to try not to comment about the fact that somebody didn't show up at the bris. That's a goal for me. That's not an easy goal, but it is within my power, at least, to reach. Can I say something else with respect? So, um... I think like if you zoom out even further and think in terms of your values as opposed to goals can change because you might get in new information. Um, so I'm kind of drawing on a couple things like I keep mentioning Adam Grant. He should pay me. Adam Grant's book. Thing. He's amazing. You You got me into him. I love his stuff. I won't even go there. I have a imaginary friendship with Adam Grant that he doesn't know about <laughs> apparently. Um anyway, so um He's Jewish, you should invite him for Shabbat. Is yeah. he Jewish? I thought I so. Not. I no? Jewish. I don't think he's Jewish. Oh well now I have a new research project. Anyway, go ahead. Anyway. <laughs> um so um if I could get a if I could get a penny for every time I Googled if somebody was Jewish. Yeah. Okay. That would be a side gig for me. Yeah. And I could get penny every time I mention Adam Grant. Anyway, so, um, <laughs> so I'm drawing on that and I'm also drawing on a book whose title I won't say because it has a bad word in it. But um, but I think it's actually a clever book if you can get beyond the bad language. Um, but um, the idea is that you can maintain your values, but as new information comes in, you you should change your beliefs, maybe your goals, even um, those things. It's okay to change and it's okay to change your values too. But generally, if you have good values that are, um, you know, more <laughs> good moral values, you may want to hang on to those. So they, I think it's Adam's book that gives this example, I'm not sure, um, where like at one time, like you could have the value that I want my kids to learn discipline. At one time, <laughs> parents thought that meant you spank your kids. And they, so they did that. But let's say new information comes in that that's not the best way to discipline your kids. So you stop spanking. So your beliefs, you don't stay married to your beliefs, but your value might might stay the same. So I kind of think of goals as a somewhere in, in between. <laughs> um, so I don't know if that speaks to what Naomi said or if, yeah. Interesting. Oh, I think. Yeah. I think our goals, I think our goals do have to be fluid. Um, But that's one of the beautiful parts of the Torah is that the Torah is this constant um, document of unchanging values. What changes is how and when do you apply those values, right? So for example, somebody was saying to me, you know, isn't the Torah against murder? Like they were talking about the situation in Israel. 
I said, yes, the Torah is against murder. Now, how do you define murder? Because the Talmud says, if somebody rises up to kill you, get up and kill them first, which means that if you know for a fact that someone has intent to kill, it is actually a mitzvah to kill that person. And it is not called murder. It's called an act of compassion for the universe, right? So there is this steady, um, this steady stream of Torah values that doesn't change, but then we have to figure out, and this is the job of our leaders and our rabbis and all of this, is to help us figure out at any point in history or at any juncture in our personal lives, well, how would that value be applied? Or how would I balance two seemingly contradictory values, right? Let's say the value of peace and the value of life. Well, how do you balance that right now in the Middle East, right? So this is where we need our leadership to help us figure out, you know, how to, that's why, you know, you were saying incorrectly. So our goals change, even our values change, but the Torah doesn't change. What changes is how it gets applied to a personal circumstance or a global circumstance for that matter, right? Like when it was COVID and people were saying, well, but it's a mitzvah to go to shul. Yes, but it's a mitzvah to preserve your health. Okay, so what do you do, right? These were the questions that the rabbinic communities were grappling with because then how do you apply those values, right? So we look back to a hundred years ago when Rabbi Israel Salanter, actually the founder of the Muslim movement was dealing with the um, pandemic of the Spanish flu. And he came out with a proclamation that all the synagogues should be closed that year on Yom Kippur. And he said, this is the value of preserving life. So our rabbis looked back a hundred years at those rabbis and utilized that as a precedent that whatever, you know what I'm saying? How it's specifically applied today. So yes. So it's it's a very interesting conversation to think about, well, what changes and what doesn't change, right? It's it's very interesting. Okay. Any other thoughts or comments on 20 and 21? Okay, so let us sneak in one more verse before we close. 22, Matzah Isha Matzah Tov. This is also one of the more famous verses from this book. He who finds a wife has found goodness. Vayafek Ratzon Hashem and obtained favor from God. Okay, so this is very interesting. I'll read you the commentary first and then I'll give you my own commentary. If a man finds a woman whom he seems as good, who appeals to him, and from whom he obtains favor and goodness, he appeals to her. This relationship is from God by his special providence and goodness. So that you should understand that if you're in a relationship, and by the way, this is not unique to a husband-wife relationship. This is true too if you find a very good friend, right? Or you have a sibling that you're really close to and you're really connected with this person and you both bring like real value to each other's lives, right? got to understand that that is a gift from God and you got to be appreciative of that. You've got to preserve that relationship, pay attention, nurture, invest in that relationship. 
right? Because that is divine providence or HP, as we like to call it in momentum lingo. That's divine providence that God has given you a very beautiful, powerful, and special relationship in your life that you should hang on to. Now, it's interesting, this is my own commentary, that it says, Matza Isha Matza Tov, that a man who finds a woman finds good. The Talmud says something very interesting. It says that a man who lives without a woman is a man who, I don't, I don't have the quote right in front of me, but basically like he doesn't have his act together, right? If you look at a bunch of single guys living alone in an apartment, you might find that they're not eating. I'm, I'm stereotyping, just letting you know. You might find that the apartment isn't very clean. You might find that the laundry is not necessarily being done on a steady schedule. You might find that they may not be shopping for produce and cooking healthful meals. Now, you take the coordinating. Let's say you have a bunch of you know young women living in an apartment together. It's much more likely that this is going to be a functional living situation with healthy habits and hygiene and values, right? Why? Because a man, and this is very, uh, you know, what do they call it? Heteronormative. So bear with me, very traditional, you know, family values. A man needs a woman to keep him grounded, to keep him on course, to keep his head on straight. A woman does not need a man for any of those things. A woman is much more likely to have achieved those habits and practices on her own by virtue of the fact that she is a woman. Very interesting. Women need men for other reasons. I'm not saying we don't, right? I believe that we need one another. One gender is not better than the other. But here the Torah is saying that a man needs a woman to live, generally speaking, a healthy, moral, hygienic, functional, social life. And I mean, I've just seen this personally, um, besides the single guy, single girl, you know, con um, contrast. I have seen over the years when we've invited many, many, many people to our homes for Shabbat, I'm going to say nine out of 10 times, it is the woman who is managing the family's social interactions and making sure that they're getting together with family, getting together with friends, making plans for Shabbat. If I try to make plans through the, through the husband, it usually doesn't work. And, and a smart husband will say to me, you know what, talk to my wife. She's the one who manages the social calendar, right? So this is very, very interesting. So number one is that when you're in a positive, beautiful, healthy relationship, whether romantic or otherwise, make sure you understand that this is a gift from God, right? And also to understand just the difference in genders, which Judaism is pretty overt about. Okay, thoughts, comments on any of the above before we close for today? I have two thoughts. Okay, yes, one of my favorite lines from... Um, Torah is early on when uh, Hashem tells Abraham, heed Sarah. Mm -hmm. um, somehow that resonates with me. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, is that women live longer than men. They do. They do. They are better at taking care of their own health. Yeah. Okay. And, the, and, and I believe married men probably live longer because their wives are watching out for their health, but I have to check the data on that. <laughs> that would be interesting to know. Thanks, yeah. Allison. Tammy, yeah. 
just real quick to piggyback on that, there's I think there's research that um, when a spouse dies, um, a, a man, <laughs> I think he either dies or 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 remarries. Yeah. Those, those options. <laughs> <laughs> Um, whereas a lot of times the women live, um, and and some of the thinking is that it is because of the social support. Um, if she's the keeper of the social support, he doesn't have that. Um, then, and I can attest to the fact that most men I know whose wives I got married really quickly afterwards. Yeah. Like, yeah, because they don't know how to live without a woman. They don't. It's true. And also women who are alone are far more likely to turn to their friends for connection and companionship and spending time together. Guys are far less likely to do that. Okay. Thank you everybody for participating. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. See those of you who are coming and God willing, may we continue to pray and may we hear good news from Israel and all over. Amen. The world. Amen. 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 <laughs> Shabbat shalom. Bye, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Shabbat shalom.